uh, usually if there's a problem with the lyrics on the screen, that's my fault, so. Uh. <laughs> Psalm 6 will be in uh, this morning. We are continuing to make our way through the book of Psalms, particularly book one. We come this morning to Psalm 6, which is a very important psalm that teaches us something about the nature of repentance, and, uh, what it looks like, and, and really even what the believer's experience of sin, of coming under the displeasure of God and, and then crying out to him for mercy uh, looks like. We have this modeled for us in Psalm 6. And so we'll begin, as we always do, by reading Psalm 6. You can see that it's uh, given a, a title, that there's instructions for how this was to be sung, that it's to the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Shemanit and there's debate as to what exactly that means. Uh, the word has the idea of eight, so it may be uh, the octave that they sing in or, or something to that effect. Uh, but we see here it's also called a, a Psalm of David. And we begin by reading in verse one, David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my, my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's go to the Lord again. Father, we are grateful for your word and that it teaches us all things we need for life, for godliness, and it even shows us great examples of what repentance looks like as we have here in the sixth psalm. We are not to be a people who are ever at ease with sin. And when we come under your 
chastening hand. It would be foolish of us if we were to brush it off and dismiss it. If we were to quickly ease our consciences by gospel promises without turning from our sin. Father, I pray for our time this morning. I pray that we would be humbled. Pray that we would learn from the example of David. I pray that we would be a people who are never at ease with sin, but who are constantly striving to grow up into maturity and holiness, and in that striving, we would be repenting of our sins. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said a moment ago, this morning we are coming to the first of seven psalms which have historically been called the penitential psalms. The others are Psalms 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. They are called the penitential psalms because they are largely characterized by penitence, or what we more commonly say now is repentance. David, we know, of course, was a man who loved God. He was described as a man who was after God's own heart. He desired to magnify the name of God. And God, because he loved David, made a great covenant with David with all kinds of great promises. But even though David was a man who loved God and who desired to please God, he was also a great sinner. We know one of his lowest moments was when he committed adultery. Then he arranged to have his sin concealed by murdering the husband of the woman he committed adultery with, or having him murdered, no less. And of course, God judged him for this sin, even telling him that there would be consequences that would plague him throughout his life. He swore that he would raise up evil against David out of his own house, which we eventually see coming from his sons, Amnon and Absalom. So there were occasions in David's life when he was persecuted by his enemies for no reason at all. He was innocent. But there were also other times when he had sinned and he had displeased God, bringing the chastening hand of God upon him. And when those times came, David did not harden his heart against God. He didn't shake his fist at him. He didn't charge him with evil. He wasn't confused 
as to why great evil was coming upon him. No, he confessed to God. He acknowledged his sin before him. He pleaded to the Lord for mercy, grace, forgiveness, and salvation, which is something you can only do once you have acknowledged that you have sinned and deserve only judgment. And this is what David is doing in this sixth psalm. We don't know the exact occasion that gave rise to this psalm. We do know how David has sinned before, but we don't know how he has sinned here. It could certainly have been the sin that he committed with Bathsheba, the adultery, but it could also have been something else that we don't know about. The point is that David here has sinned. And here in the psalm, he is crying out to God for mercy. He feels the displeasure of God, the weight of God's disciplining rod is heavy upon him, and he longs to be restored. As he would say later in Psalm 51, he longs for the joy of salvation to be restored to him. So this is a psalm that teaches us something about the experience of sin, the experience of repentance and confession and crying out to God for mercy and salvation. And one of the first things that we learn from this psalm of repentance is just the anguish of being under God's discipline. That's one of the first things that I want to note this morning is the anguish of the repentant sinner of being under God's disciplinary hand. When we sin, we should never be comfortable in it. We should not be able to just brush it off and ignore it as if it never happened. There are many people who believe that since they've trusted in Christ, they've become members of the new covenant, they've become his children, that they're somehow incapable of displeasing God, or that they'll never come under his disciplining hand. It's as if their lives are supposed to be such that even if they do sin, all they know of God, all their experience of God is simply that of happiness and that he is always well pleased with them. But even the most basic understanding of Scripture should disabuse us of this notion. The Apostle Paul, for example, speaks of the fact that we believers can grieve the Holy Spirit. The author of Hebrews says that the discipline of God is evidence that we are his sons, that we are his children. And that on the contrary, to be left without discipline is to prove that you are an illegitimate child. 
But God is not your father and you are not his son. If a person can claim to know Christ and to love God and can go on sinning without knowing anything of the displeasure of God or his chastening hand, they are even in a worse position than an outspoken atheist. Because they've de deceived themselves into believing that they are in a right standing with God. Whereas the atheist just knows, I don't believe in God. I've rejected him outright. You are in a far worse position if you are deceived. If you can go on sinning and care nothing about it at all. Now, one of the true marks of someone who knows God and is in covenant with him is genuine anguish over their sin and over the righteous judgment of God that falls upon them. And of course, this was the case with David. David was in covenant with God. He loved him, which is what made his sin against God and God's discipline of David so painful was the fact that David loved God and God loved him. Look at what David says in verse 1. He says, O Lord, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. This is the same language that we find in the Davidic covenant when God says of David's offspring, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. The point is that David here is acknowledging that he has sin. He is being rebuked and disciplined for this very reason. He's not calling here upon God to give him no discipline at all, but that his righteous discipline would not be characterized by wrath and anger. In other words, David is calling upon God that he would not be treated like the unbelievers who know nothing of God's love and his covenant faithfulness. Back in Psalm 2, it is to rebellious peoples that God says he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. But David here is asking the Lord, do not treat me like them. Do not treat me like the rebellious. Do not give me wrath and fury. Now, it is undoubtedly the case that for one who knows God, even the loving, fatherly, covenantal discipline of God can feel as if you come under his eternal wrath. But this is because of the genuine love that exists 
in the relationship. When a child sins in the home and his sin is discovered by his father and he comes under his father's discipline, he can feel as if he's just committed the greatest crime that has ever been committed on earth. That's what his experience of the discipline can seem like. If he lies and his lie is discovered, the sense of anguish that he may experience may be nearly the same as when a murderer has been caught by the police. The degree of evil may be different, but because of the relationship that the child has to his father and his desire to please his father, the anguish of that displeasure can feel just the same. And this is how David feels in the psalm. Because of his sin and because of his relationship to the Lord, the chastening hand of the Lord feels as if it's the same wrath and eternal judgment that comes upon the rebellious. He describes his experience in verses 2 and 3. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. He speaks here as if there's no health in his body at all. He is like a man who has the worst case of the flu. He's got no energy. He's exhausted. He, he can barely even move. He is afflicted with aches that go down into his bones. There is soreness throughout his whole body and it reaches down all the way into his soul. He says, my soul is greatly troubled. It is shaking within me. Indeed, he's so sick that he can't even finish his sentences. He says further, but you, O Lord, how long? How long? Throughout the Psalms, this question, how long, is usually completed by some other statement, some idea. Psalm 74, verse 10, we read there, How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Psalm 80, verse 4, How long, Will you be angry with your people's prayers? Psalm 94, verse 3, How long shall the wicked exult? But here, it's as if David is so weak with sorrow that he can't even finish the question. He simply says, How long? And then stops. There is nothing further that he can say. The words won't come out. We find further down in the psalm, in verses 6 
to seven, that he is incapable of speaking clearly because he's overwhelmed with weeping. He says, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. The imagery here is literally that of melting. He has been weeping for so long that his couch, that his bed, that the places that are to be firm, places where he can lay his head, have dissolved, have melted away, have liquefied into water because of the abundance of his tears. And all of this, because the disciplining judgments of God have fallen upon him through the means of enemies being raised up against him. He feels, he experiences the displeasure of God because of his sin, and it has led him to a great anguish of soul. My friends, would that it would be the case that God would tenderize our hearts in the same way when it comes to our sins. That we would be sensitive to the realities of our own offenses to God. We are too often like Pharaoh, hardening our hearts against God's judgments. We show just enough repentance for God's judgments to ease. And then we turn to sin yet again. He sends His hail and His thunder and we confess like Pharaoh, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. But in the moment that the hail and the thunder, the moment that the judgments have eased, we then act like Pharaoh. We harden our hearts and we go right back into the same sin. It is often the case that we feel ourselves far too above weeping for sin. And because the depths of our sorrow is often superficial, it is often the case that our repentance is equally superficial. I'm not saying here that every time you sin, you ought to spend the next several weeks lying in your bed mourning over it. But I do think that it's worth considering whether or not part of the problem of spiritual deadness in our day is due to superficial conviction and repentance. David wept, and he could barely speak. Job covered himself in dust and ashes. Ezra, when he saw the sin of the people of God in the return from exile, tore his own hair out. Peter, of course, standing before Jesus, even as he's being restored, was grieved. But we, do we ever feel anything? Do we 
feel the weight of our sin and that severing that takes place between us and our Father. The Puritan John Owen, in instructing Christians how to go about the work of mortifying sin, among many directions that he gave, he said that we must, we must get a clear and abiding sense upon our minds and conscience of the guilt, danger, and evil of the sin that entangles us. And he warned that one of the deceitful tricks of sin is to convince us that our sins are just little ones. They're not worth much consideration. They're certainly not worth many tears. And how often is it the case that we listen to that lie? We sin against God. We feel the hammer of God's law coming upon us. But then we quickly heal ourselves. Jesus forgives me. And we move on. And then we sin again. And the hammer turns now into a small prick. And we respond in the same way immediately. Jesus forgives me. No big deal. And we move on until eventually we get to the place where we sin and there's not even the smallest prick. The conscience has become so seared that there's no feeling at all. And we sin and we sin without even the slightest discomfort and so true repentance gets thrown aside while at the same time in doing so we throw our own souls away we need to see our sin for what it is as owen said in the work of putting to death the deeds of the body by the spirit one of the things we must do is get a clear sense of the evil and guilt of sin. And we need hearts and consciences that are sensitive to it rather than hearts that are stone fortresses that don't allow a single word from God to penetrate. As one man has put it, it is better to weep now when God will hear than hereafter when mercy shall be clean gone forever. To us sinners, sorrow must come. The wise prefer to mourn when mourning for sin shall be followed by peace and joy. It is now that is the time for the sinner to weep 
over sin and to come to Christ to receive that peace and joy. Because if you wait to weep for your sin until you have died, you will not know the mercy and grace of the gospel. You will know only weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Anger towards God and His wrath upon you. The wise man has sorrow over sin now. And he turns from it. And he is restored by the Lord. Now, a second point I want you to see here from David's psalm of repentance is his God-glorifying petition of salvation. And what I mean here by the fact that his petition for salvation is God-glorifying is that he not only has his own interest in mind in his salvation, he not only wants to be saved from his enemies and have relief from God's disciplining hand, but he wants his own salvation to bring glory to God. Notice what he says in verses 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord. If the Lord's face has been against him in judgment, here he's calling on God to turn. Turn and make your face shine upon me. Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life. Save me, notice, for the sake of your steadfast love. That is, your covenant faithfulness. Do this for me, for you. Save me for your sake, God. Verse 5, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? In other words, the dead don't praise you because they're dead. They're in the grave. Some of them may be in the presence of the Lord right now, but David is speaking of what you hear from the dead, which is nothing. There's nothing on earth from the dead that praises God. You step right out of here into that cemetery and it's quiet. And that's what David's saying. David, for his sake, for his own desire, desires to be saved. And out of this salvation, he wants two things to happen. One, that God would be known as a God who is full of loving kindness, who keeps his covenant promises. And two, that he would be praised because of it. We find the same kind of request in another penitential psalm, Psalm 51, where David says there in verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then further down in verse 13, notice, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. 
So the salvation that David desires is not merely a salvation from his own troubles, but a salvation that will result in the praise and glory of God. David wants God not only to grant him relief, but to act on his behalf for God's name's sake. Friends, when you call upon God in prayer to save you, whether that be from your sins or from judgment or positively that God would show you favor in his providential governing of all things, whatever the prayer may be, it must be one that has as its chief and greatest goal the glory of God. This is one of the hallmark absurdities of any prosperity preaching you ever hear where everyone, all of the false teachers are teaching everyone that you and your prayers are to go to God, demand things from Him, whether that be possessions, whether that be recognition, and it's all for your own sake. For your comfort. For your ease. For your name. That's not in any way ever a biblical prayer. The people of God always have the name of God and the glory of God as our chief desire. And as we pursue the glory of God, we get blessings from that. As we go to God in repentance, crying out to God, save me! Save me. That's a, that's a call that I would benefit from God's work. As we do that, we're ultimately seeking the glory of God in it. So that I, as a sinner, or that someone else as a sinner, will no longer be one who blasphemes the name of God, but upholds the name of God as it ought to be. We always pursue the glory of God, even in our pursuit of salvation. And then a third point we can note in this psalm is David's certainty that the Lord will answer his prayers. In verse 8, the very enemies who were causing David so much sorrow are now commanded to depart from him. And David explains the reason why and what follows. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. David here, he's, he's like the, the Israelites when they were in slavery in Egypt. They cried out to God and their cry reached his ears and God remembered his covenant with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and determined to save them. And David's own weeping came before God through the means of prayer. And because God had entered into a covenant with him, he heard those cries, he remembered his covenant, and he determined to grant salvation to David. In Psalm 2, verse 5, God had promised 
in this Davidic covenant. God had promised that he would terrify or trouble the enemies of his anointed, his messianic king, and that through the Son, his wrath would be quickly kindled. And here in Psalm 6, verse 10, David, echoing God's promises there, says, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They will be terrified. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. For that wrath is quickly kindled. In this psalm, David goes from weeping over his sin, God's disciplining rod, to praying for God to deliver him, to ultimately trusting in God that that deliverance would come as God keeping his promises. And friends, that's the the same kind of confidence and certainty, the same kind that David had then is the same kind that we can have in our own prayers for salvation. Not, of course, because we've merited God's favor in any way or done anything worthy of God's blessing, but because God has made another covenant and has inaugurated that covenant by the shed blood of his own Son. And in this covenant, in that new covenant, he promises that all who are in it will have their sins forgiven, will be given the Spirit of God and made heirs of his glorious kingdom. We can have hope that God will save us out of all of our own troubles, not not save us from them, not save us as if we're never going to have any troubles, but he will save us out of them and through them, and we can have this hope that God will do so for his people because one has come into the world who bears all of our sins. Which leads me to a final point that I want to make about this psalm, and it has to do with the point I've made before about the words of David being understood also as the words of Christ. Now you'll remember that when we first began going through the Psalms, I argued that a proper understanding of the Psalms means that we must understand them, especially the Davidic Psalms, we must understand them as first the words of David, he's the one who wrote them, and second the words of Christ as he is the one who ultimately fulfills them. Of course, this raises an important question. What are we to do with these penitential psalms? How are we to understand these? How could these be said to be the words of Christ? David, here and elsewhere, is acknowledging, confessing that he's a sinner. In other Psalms, he speaks of my sin, my iniquity. How could these be the words of Christ if Christ had no sin? This is important 
question. And I think it's worth addressing because we will see in other Psalms, David speak of his sin in even more clear and forceful terms. So I want to unpack this question a little bit, and I want to begin by answering this question with another question, which I think in rhetoric is something you're not supposed to do. I'm going to do it anyway. Who's the person? Who's the person? Let's talk about this first. Can you say of yourself that you are righteous? Can you say of yourself that you are righteous? Well, I hope in one sense you can. Because if you can't say that in any sense, it means you're lost. There is a very real sense that for the Christian, you can say you are righteous. Now, if you say that you are righteous, and by that you mean that you've merited the status of righteous, that you've done enough good things in your life, that you've built a worthy reputation around town, that you're respectable, that you're overall a, a good person, you love your family, your friends love you, your heart's always in the right place. If you say, I am righteous, and in any sense of the word, that's what you mean, you're actually a hypocrite. And biblically, you stand condemned before God. You are self-righteous and standing on the same footing as the Pharisees. And unless you humble yourself before God and confess that you are a sinner, you will likewise perish. But if you say, I am righteous, and by that, you have the gospel in mind. You're not thinking about anything you have done or any righteousness you have merited. You are thinking of your standing before God. You're thinking of the glorious gospel truth that by faith you have been clothed in the righteousness of another. You're thinking about Christ and the gift of righteousness that he grants to everyone who is united to him by faith. When you say, I am righteous, you are not saying, I'm righteous in myself, but you're saying, I'm righteous because of the righteousness of another. In that sense, because of the gospel, there is a very real sense in which you and me, sinners, can say, 
I am righteous. I possess righteousness. It's mine. It belongs to me. Romans 5 verse 17 speaks of those who have received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reigning in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You've received righteousness. It's yours. You possess it. In that sense, you can say, it's my righteousness. Jesus has given it to me. And I am righteous because of him. Because Christ is mine. You can say that if you're a believer. Now, keeping that in mind, we return to the issue. How could any words of David that acknowledge and confess sin ever be the words of Christ? In what sense could the words, my sin, be placed upon the lips of Christ? And to this I say, in the same way that you can be called righteous, Christ can be called sin. Not because he ever committed sin or knew sin himself, but because he really and truly bore our sin. Paul says, for our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. And when Christ became sin, though he had committed no sins in himself, all of our sin and all of our iniquity was really and truly placed upon him. As one writer has put it, the fact of Calvary is not a sham or mirage. It is a fact. Through the atonement, Christ really and truly grants to us a righteousness that is not our own. And in such a way, we can truly say, this is my righteousness because Christ is mine. And in the same way, through the atonement, Christ really and truly receives from us iniquity that is not his own, that he did not commit, but that was laid upon him by the Father such that he can truly say, their sins are my sins. I've received them. They've been given to me. He did not bear the wrath of God in his own body because he was without sin. 
that would be unrighteous. He bore the wrath of God because he was made sin. And he was made sin because all of our sins, all the occasions where we cried out to God, I have sinned, and many more occasions we don't even know about, all of them were placed upon him, and all of that wrath was poured out upon him as a sin offering. In the same way that the ram was really and truly spotless and blemished, without blemish, was then called sin, or then called guilt, so also is Christ, who in himself is without spot, is without blemish, is without sin at all, when that sin is laid upon him, he becomes sin and guilt and bears the wrath of God in his flesh. There's a moment in Jesus' ministry when he knows that his hour is coming. He knows the time is coming when the Father is going to lay upon him the iniquity of us all. And he's going to become sin. And he's going to bear the wrath of God. The judgment of God is going to fall upon him. And in that moment, he echoes the words of the sixth Psalm. In John chapter 12, verse 27, he says there, now is my soul troubled. The words of David. O oh Lord, my soul is greatly troubled. Why? Because he's under judgment. And here, Jesus saying in the hour that has come for the wrath of the Father to fall upon him for the iniquity of his people, he says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Why is his soul troubled? Because David's sin is about to become his own and mine and yours. It's all about to be his. Him owning what we deserved. And the wrath that David deserved for the great iniquities that he had committed the son David's offspring is about to drink in his place the cup of God's wrath will fall upon the son so 
how can Christ, as the fulfillment of the Psalms, speak of my sin in the same way that you and I can speak of my righteousness? A sweet exchange has taken place. You and I have merited no righteousness before God, but we've been given righteousness as a gift. And Christ himself did not commit a single sin. He did not merit the status, the characteristic of sinner, but he became sin for us so that in him and by faith in him we might become the righteousness of God. So my sin becomes his sin and his righteousness becomes my righteousness. And through this sweet exchange that takes place on the cross of Calvary, God can be magnified truly as the one who is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, of the one who is ungodly. That is the gift that has been given to us when we are united to Christ by faith. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Father, the anguish that we should feel for our sin was truly felt by your Son. And in your grace and mercy, you laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And like a spotless lamb, he was led to slaughter so that through him the many may be made righteous. Father, we are grateful for this mysterious, divine, gracious work that you have accomplished in and through your Son. We pray for all of us who are united to him that we would never take the cost of the cross for granted but that when there is a severance in our joy of salvation because our relationship with you is broken from our sin and we cause the spirit to grieve that when these moments come when we sin and stumble and fall would you grant us hearts that are tender and sensitive to the weight of it so that we will go and sin no more. 
that we would have no superficial repentance that returns again and again like a dog to its vomit. But that we would be a people who once smelling the stench of sin would flee in the opposite direction toward the cross of Christ. And as we fall before him with tears and with true sorrow, that he would then in his grace lift up our heads that we may be restored. Father, work within us repentance that is true as David says, so that you may be praised and your steadfast love be exalted. We pray in Jesus' name.